Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Inc., a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Right now, in Amsterdam, a once-in-a-lifetime exhibition of paintings by Johannes Vermeer at the Rijksmuseum has captured the world's attention, becoming a pilgrimage destination for art lovers around the globe who were lucky enough to snag a ticket to the sold-out show. But how much do we really understand about the mysterious 17th century painter who gave us the girl with the pearl earring? And how much do we really know about the complex legacy of his art? This week, while the art angle is on hiatus, we thought we'd help fill in the gaps by re-airing a particularly popular episode that we did about Vermeer and his century-old secrets that are only now coming to light. Maybe because we have so few examples of his work, we're willing to suspend disbelief when a painting as ugly as this comes into our lives by someone who has a lot of authority, who wants to tell us that, yeah, this is another premiere. We would like that to be true. But in this case, it's just really, really obvious it's not. Hi. I'm Julia Halperin, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. You've seen it. A woman in a blue turban set against a black background, looking over her shoulder like you just called her name. She's wearing a heavy pearl earring in one ear, and her skin is so luminous it looks like she swallowed a light bulb. Yes, I'm talking about Girl with a Pearl Earring one of the most famous paintings in the world. It's been reproduced countless times on mugs, t-shirts, and pillows. It has inspired poems, novels, and movies. But the artist who created Girl with a Pearl Earring, he remains shrouded in mystery. Strangely, little is known about Johannes Vermeer. He lived in Holland in the 17th century and died in 1675 at the age of 43. He made fewer than 36 paintings. And audiences around the globe are fascinated by his portrayals of quiet domesticity. It's always been assumed he worked in the same kind of solitude that he often depicted in his paintings. But new research is challenging that assumption. Over the past several years, museums have used cutting-edge technology to get under the surface of Vermeer and learn more about how he actually worked. To discuss Vermeer's many secrets and the artist we thought we knew... I spoke with Kristen Capps, a Washington, D.C.-based contributor to Artnet News. Thank you for joining us on The Art Angle, Kristen. Hey, thanks for having me. Vermeer is one of the most famous painters in history, and a new wave of scholarship is offering fresh insight into his luminous masterpieces and throwing into question some of our entrenched beliefs about him, like that he was a lone genius perfectionist. So let's start with what scholars can all agree on. Tell us a bit about Vermeer's upbringing and career. Well, we don't know that much about him. And what we do know comes mostly from official records. For example, that he was a member of the Painters Guild. He lived in the city of Delft, famous for its blue ceramics. He was baptized there in 1632. During the early part of the Dutch imperial rise, what is sometimes called the Golden Age, His father was an art dealer and an innkeeper and did other things. And Vermeer followed in that part of the family business. But but little is known really how. We don't know 
who Vermeer trained with. We have some theories about the course of his studies, for example, the influence that a group of artists known as the Utrecht Caravagists might have had on him. But what we know otherwise is just really very limited. I believe we do know that he died in deep debt of a sudden illness when he was 43. And I found a letter in which his wife claimed that he fell ill just a day and a half before he died. I have no idea if that's true, but it gives us a sense of the suddenness at least. And after that, he sort of fell off the radar and into obscurity for 200 years. So what happened and what brought him back into the public consciousness? Well, during his lifetime, he achieved modest success as a kind of painter of the middle class. He was an artist who made portraits, usually of women doing daily work. And after his death, all that work was simply forgotten. Vermeer was rediscovered in the 19th century when a museum director correctly identified a painting by Vermeer in 1860. And that kind of set up this wave of scholarship and thinking. Another art critic published an essay attributing about 60 different paintings by a whole score of Dutch artists to Vermeer. And that kind of set the stage for people to begin really identifying his work, thinking about his work, and acknowledging that this guy Vermeer actually existed. So today... I believe that there are only 34 paintings that everybody agrees are by Vermeer. And then there are a few that people disagree about and some that have been totally deemed inauthentic, which we can get into shortly. But it does surprise me that Vermeer has been the subject of so many fakes and forgeries, considering that his style seems pretty difficult to reproduce. You know, it's a lot harder than I would imagine, like an abstract canvas or something like that. And so tell us some of the famous forgery scandals surrounding Vermeer? Well, Vermeer is so interesting because his forgeries are sort of what really launched Vermeer the painter into the public realm that he occupies today. And in particular, one forger named Hans van Meegeren, and forgive me, Dutch listeners, I am sure that I'm butchering this pronunciation, who was, you know, a 20th century figure who was not a good painter, really, but a very original forger. He decided early on what he wanted to do was kind of invent a great deal of Vermeer paintings, and he came up with this really original way of doing it. He would take these 17th century originals, these paintings that were not deemed very important. And he would scrape off the surface to get to what you'd call crackalure, that kind of cracked surface of old paintings. He spent years devising this way of painting over that, but maintaining that kind of older cracked surface. He used a synthetic resin mixed with oil, a kind of a plastic to develop the surface of these works. But he also developed this theory of Vermeer, based on the speculation that Vermeer not only admired the Utrecht artists who were kind of very deeply influenced by Caravaggio, but he went to Italy himself. And so this forger Van Meeren came up with this body of lost Italian paintings by Vermeer. In the 1930s, he convinced a lot of people that he found these works and he sold a great deal of them. In the 30s, he convinced 
an art historian and museum director in The Hague named Abraham Bradius that he had not just an original Vermeer painting, but like the most important Vermeer painting at Ball, a painting of Christ and his disciples, which would have been kind of out of character from what we know of Vermeer's work. But with the imprimatur of this really important art historian, he was able to sell a lot of people on, on this work. Now, he made a mistake in the 30s when he sold to Hermann Göring, the Nazi field marshal, because after the end of the war, Migeren was arrested by the Allied Art Office for allowing Nazis to loot European art. He was a collaborator. And the sentence of this was extremely serious. The charges included penalty of death for collaboration. So this was a huge problem for Van Migeren because in doing this illegal work of forging Vermeer, there was no one who could corroborate his story. No one who could say, no, actually, all these Vermeers that I've been selling that have convinced the world are true are in fact fake. So in 1947, there is this sensational trial where Van Meeren is ordered to recreate a Vermeer painting using his unique proprietary techniques. And he does this. And there are these incredible paintings, this like giant table laid out with all these materials where he's using to make this fake Vermeer. And he succeeds, he is sentenced, but just to a single year for forgery. This story is really important because not only does it really elevate this understanding about Vermeer, but part of the reckoning over this ordeal involves, you know, a lot of art historians and critics and curators kind of looking in the mirror and deciding that they need to develop some more objective techniques and bring scientific methods to the work of provenance and authentication. Wow. So just to make sure I understand, to backtrack, Van Meegren flipped from trying to convince everyone that the works he was hawking were by Vermeer to now trying to say, no, they aren't by Vermeer. In fact, they're fakes so that he got in less trouble for selling them to a Nazi. That's right. He was up against allied authorities and had the choice of admitting that he was a faker or being sentenced to death. And, you know, I think he made the smart choice there, but it was a really difficult acquittal process. Wow. So right now there are two major Vermeer exhibitions in the news, one that's on view at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and one that opens at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam in February. And both are shedding new light on the artist and challenging what we thought we knew about him. So let's start with the one at the National Gallery, which I know that you visited. What is the concept of the show? So the National Gallery show about the secrets of Vermeer is a kind of technical presentation by curators and conservators. There are seven people involved at the National Gallery, including John Delaney, who is a senior imaging scientist for the museum, and Marjorie Wiseman, who is the curator and head of the Department of Northern European Paintings. And their concept is a presentation. They're showing their findings that one of the Vermeer paintings in their collection is likely not actually a painting by Vermeer at all, but rather someone who worked closely with him. 
This could be a family member. This might be a student. It's hard to say, but what they're saying is that they have decided that this is not a Vermeer painting and they are attributing it now to the school of Vermeer. And the National Gallery said that this research was only possible because the building was closed for so long in 2020. Why is that? This was an amazing detail to me. Uh, It's because the National Gallery literally cannot take these paintings off the wall. I mean that in that they are so popular and people come to this museum from, you know, everywhere to see these paintings. So you cannot remove them to do the kind of conservation study that they had in mind. It was just simply unthinkable to take them down. I just love the idea that there's like this army of tourists and Vermeer devotees who will not let the museum study these paintings <laughs> during regular hours because they need to see them. Like, I just love that anyone would care that much. It was incredible. Even when the study was done and the paintings were back on the wall in the Dutch galleries, in between that period and the single week or so when they were moved to this special exhibition, people were like angry and complaining to the museum that they can't see the Vermeers. So conservators used two different high-tech methods to examine Vermeer's paintings for this show. And I'm going to ask you what they are, but I'm also going to ask you to explain them to me as if I am in middle school. Okay, and here I'm going to apologize to the scientists, just like with the Dutch, because I'm sure I'm going to mangle some of these terms as well. One of them is X-ray fluorescence imaging spectroscopy which is a way of mapping the distribution of elements like copper within the surface of the painting. Using this material, they can actually just see where Vermeer used certain pigments based on the spectacle imaging that they can do of the elements within those pigments. The other technique is false color infrared reflectance imaging. So that's a different way of using technology to look within the painting. And it allows scientists to see brush strokes below the surface. So they can look at certain pigments like lead white underneath the surface of Vermeer's very smooth painting and see much heavier brush strokes. I'll add a third technique, which is micro sampling, which allows them to kind of take a very, very, very tiny sample of the painting to see layers of pigments. So you're talking about really three ways that scientists are mapping pigments within the surface of the painting. And what that gives them is a more detailed analysis of how Vermeer painted, the pigments that he used, the way that he used them, where that he used them. And you can see over the course of these studies patterns in the work that tell us what a Vermeer is, you know, a different way of looking at it from than a curatorial analysis, which the National Gallery also did. Based on what you've explained, would it be fair for me to say that the first technique is like an X-ray, the second one is like a CT scan, and the third one is like a biopsy? That's a perfect way to describe it. There's just three different techniques that all tell you three different things that when taken together, give you a good picture of what's happening in Vermeer's 
paintings underneath the surface. So using these techniques, as you mentioned earlier, researchers discovered that one Vermeer, girl with a flute, was not, in fact, a Vermeer. How did they make that determination? So this painting is, um, there's a term for it, a Dutch term, a tromi, and that refers to a kind of head study that was popular at the time. It's not quite a portrait. It's a bit more experimental. It was a format that Rembrandt and other painters used to kind of study expressions, to study costumes, and to study the work that they wanted to do. And this is typical of that format. You have a woman's face is the kind of centerpiece of the painting. She's wearing what looks like a kind of garb with fur and a wide-brimmed hat, and she's holding a flute. So what this researchers found when they looked at this painting, really, was that it just wasn't made the way that Vermeer made his paintings. Instead of a sketchier underpainting with a heavy brushstroke, followed by this really smooth glowing surface that Vermeer is known for, this painter did it kind of the opposite way. Now, with the materials and methods that this painter used, they can tell that he knew what Vermeer was doing. He or she worked closely with Vermeer, but just some of the techniques are kind of wrong. I mean, for example, when you look really, really, really close at the surface of Vermeer, he uses these dots, these perfect circles to show the reflection of light glancing off a surface. And he will like pick a pigment from nearby to use for this glint of light. And in Girl with a Flute, there is that kind of glint of light in her teeth, but it's green and it, it doesn't look right. Once you have this kind of analysis in front of you and you look at this painting, you think, yeah, actually this, this doesn't really look right. My question is always like, is it by that person on a bad day or is it just not by that person at all? And I guess that's why you need more sophisticated techniques to suss that out. Yeah. And for decades, I think curators have been looking for evidence to suggest that it could have been someone else or that it was a, <laughs> a bad day or that he had those. But the National Gallery is saying, no, no, it wasn't him. One of the most interesting things to me about this discovery is that it means that Vermeer may not have been the solitary genius who worked alone, that he might have had some help. So what kind of alternative picture does it paint of this artist that we thought we knew so well? You know, what's fascinating is that it doesn't give us an explanation. It opens a lot more questions than it resolves. It might have been a cousin a family member who was visiting for, I don't know, a few weeks, a few months, who worked closely with Vermeer in his studio. You know, it might have been a disciple who was learning Vermeer's methods. For an artist who only produced what we know to be around three dozen paintings, it seems a little unlikely that he would have an entire school the way that other major painters at the time did. He was still a very modest painter, but this could be evidence of some enterprise there. And the National Gallery show also includes two paintings acquired by the industrialist Andrew Mellon during Vermeer fever in the 1920s. And those later turned out to be forgeries. And 
I have to say, I don't think of myself as like a great art connoisseur. But when I did see pictures of these, I sort of felt like, okay, I don't know that those would have fooled me. Yeah, no way. Can you describe what they look like? They're very ugly. There's this one painting. To me, it looks like a portrait of Mia Goth from the horror movies X and Pearl that came out this year. This painting looks like it could almost be girl with a pearl earring done by a kind of artificial intelligence or something. It is definitely an effort, but I mean, not even really a D grade at that. But this lines up with a lot of the stories about forgeries and Vermeer. Andrew Mellon got fooled during this period of high Vermeer mania, just like other curators, art historians, museum directors before who just wanted there to be a Vermeer. Maybe because we have so few examples of his work, we're willing to suspend disbelief when a painting as ugly as this comes into our lives by someone who has a lot of authority, who wants to tell us that, yeah, this is another Vermeer. We would like that to be true. But in this case, it's just really, really obvious it's not. The surface of the skin of Vermeer's subjects is so luminous. Like it looks like they have like a light bulb on inside their bodies. And you look at this one and it just looks like she's got caked on face makeup and she like might be trying to play a zombie. She looks sick. It's girl with the black death. <laughs> yeah, it so is. Do we know anything about where they came from? Like are these Van Meegren fakes or we don't know much about their origin? I don't know exactly where these came from, but there was, you know, a heady market for Vermeer forgeries, especially with all of the sensationalism that surrounded Van Meegeren and his trial. I think it's kind of like this long arc that only started very recently. Vermeer was nobody, just a totally forgotten painter. And then hundreds of years later, People start to notice his work and then get really excited about his work and want there to be a lot more work than there actually is. So let's shift gears to the Rijksmuseum exhibition, which is going to be the largest collection of Vermeers ever assembled, 26 out of the 34 accepted Vermeers. And the Rijksmuseum also plans to include Girl with a Flute in its exhibition and to present it as a genuine Vermeer. So how did the museum announce that decision and why is it significant? Well, I don't know about you, but it kind of reads to me like a smackdown. I mean, in the very polite museum director sense, but the director of the Rijksmuseum says that attribution is not hard science and, quote, we differ in view from the National Gallery, which suggests that they're going to do it, and they're not really supplying an explanation for why they think the National Gallery is wrong, but they want that painting in, and it's going in. How is it labeled at the National Gallery now? It is now labeled as School of Vermeer, and that's how the National Gallery is planning to label it for the future. And as we talked about, you know, the National Gallery used sophisticated imaging technology to look under the surface of Vermeer's paintings, and the Rijksmuseum did as well. And the experts there determined that Vermeer may have not been the painstaking perfectionist that we all thought. So how did they come to that conclusion? 
using both the x-ray and infrared technology, they can see that he painted over things. He started over that he worked with a really, really heavy brushstroke to just kind of lay down fields of paint in a pretty sloppy way relative to the surface of the canvas that he's applying. So it's just when they pop the hood, the paintings look totally different than what they would have expected given the very luminous, soft, glowing nature of Vermeer's paintings when you see them in the galleries. It's hard for me to imagine him at any stage working with this brash, big brushstroke kind of slicing the canvas into zones. Like I can only imagine him with some kind of monocle and a tiny, tiny paintbrush based on what they look like in the end. Totally. It really cuts against a narrative that I think I have and that maybe other viewers have too of this idea that there are only three dozen or so Vermeer paintings because each one is this perfect poem that took ages and ages and ages to finish. But maybe that's not the case. Maybe he just didn't make that many paintings because he was not especially successful at it. And I also like what it says about how you can create in a way that may have no relation to what you end up creating. Even as writers, there's an impulse to start from the first line and make it good all the way through, even though that's basically impossible. You know, you have to start with a bad draft and move stuff around and course correct and make it bad before you can make it good. And so I sort of like that Vermeer is just like us. Yeah, I mean, in a way, this is very embarrassing. These scientists have found Vermeer's drafts and they're opening that folder to the world and it looks just as sloppy as all of our work. And that stinks for him. But it's nice for us. It's nice for us. So I wonder, what do you respond to in Vermeer's work? And do these new discoveries change the way you see or think about it? Well, for a completely different work trip, I had the opportunity to go to the Netherlands after this exhibition opened at the National Gallery and see the amazing works at the Rijksmuseum. And I don't know the answer totally. I don't know how I would have reacted to those paintings if I had not seen the drafts that we're just discussing. I don't know if I feel differently, but I still love things about Vermeer. I mean, it's amazing to have this kind of incredible glow given to these totally identifiable middle-class scenes. There's a painting of a house and a kind of alleyway that just looks like a yard you would find anywhere in Amsterdam. And it looks almost kind of photographic in the glow. And those things don't change. That feeling doesn't change no matter how much you know. But it has really shattered my opinion of these old curators and historians who believe these bad forgeries. I'm shocked. I'm stunned. There is something about him that I respond to, which is this, first of all, just the attention that he pays to middle-class women. I think you don't see that in a lot of art from the time. The real mm. engagement with their emotions. There's this painting that's owned by the Frick called Officer and Laughing Girl that I almost cry at every time I see it. And it's just this woman sitting in front of a map 
and facing an open window and facing this officer who's clearly come to call on her. And her face is so open and her expression is just like this massive amount of hope is just like tumbling from her face and her body. And that I feel like it doesn't really matter to me how it came to be. The finished product is so piercing to me that I can't think about the way the underpainting is structured when I see it. Like I can only feel what is coming from her face. To that end, I also think about artists who came after Vermeer. There's a painting at the Brooklyn Museum I really love by Thomas Dewing, like a 1912 painting called Lady and Gold. And it is this really glowing figure of a very aristocratic woman painted tonally kind of in the style maybe of James Whistler. And I know that Dewing spent a lot of time chasing Vermeer over his career. A lot of the work he did was trying to replicate that same level of introspection about a different class of women, highly rich, Gilded Age women, but to achieve that same effect, to kind of penetrate through that wealth and that society and find a real human figure underneath it. And I wonder about the frustration that he must have felt, that other artists must have felt chasing Vermeer. And I wonder whether they would have any satisfaction knowing, nope, he was just very sloppy too, corrected in the final draft. I don't know if they would think differently about their own courses as artists, if they understood that. And, you know, there aren't that many artists that anyone on the street would know if you pulled them over on the side of the street. And Vermeer is one of them. And I wonder why do you think we are all so fascinated by him and his work, considering especially there are just so few artworks for us to look at? It's not like he has a big body of work. You would think it would have come down a bit after a massive Nazi trial. Like, you would think that would be the high watermark of Vermeer craze with actual life and death on the line, history and loot and provenance. But no, it only seems to have gotten more heightened. And it makes you start to think that there might be something to the paintings themselves. That It's not just this social craze. It's not a new technology. It's not a social media. But maybe, possibly, it is just something about Vermeer and his work that we really respond to. Is that naive? I don't think so. I mean, I think that is sort of what people latch on to. That's the thing that makes you remember it in your brain when you stop looking at it or after you see a reproduction of it. I think obviously there are plenty of deserving artists who did not get history's attention either during their lives or after, but there is something about those that you just, when you're looking at them, like I just feel like I'm in a silent room, even if I'm not. And that I think maybe they're just that good. Maybe, maybe they are. Well, thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you for joining us. We will have you back on soon, hopefully. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening. See you next week.